As a way of introduction, life in this fallen evil world is a struggle. During this corona pandemic, we've experienced firsthand the trials and the troubles that life brings to each one of us. Also during this past week, we lost the dear sister B. Hansen as Jesus took her home to be with him. In the language of Job, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. We see in Job 5, verse 7. Our Christian life is no exception. In fact, the closer that we walk with Jesus Christ, the tougher that life gets, it seems. Have you ever experienced that? I think we all have. Jesus warned to his own. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. In John 16, Paul and Barnabas preached a sobering truth that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In Acts 14, 22. And Paul told Timothy that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3, 2. So it's pretty easy for us to see that in this life, we will have struggles, won't we? In the same verse where he gave warning of trials, the Lord comforted his disciples. He says, take courage. I have overcome the world, in John 16, 33. The writer of Hebrews records God's promise. He says, I will never leave you or desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. Then how do you and I experience triumph in the midst of trouble? The answer lies in the truth of this passage this morning. By gazing at the glory of God more clearly in, revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, 4, verses 6. Nowhere is God's glory more clearly shown than in His Son, the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the only way to successfully live the Christian life is by beholding, as we see in verse 18, the glory of the Lord. Or by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 2. In 2 Peter 1, 19, we see the apostle Peter confirm the superiority of Scripture over our experiences. Though he had a great vision of Christ's glory at this transfiguration, Paul was there, Peter was there. And Peter regarded Scripture as the more important source of knowledge. He described it as the prophetic word made more clear. 
looking at the face of Jesus Christ, as we see in the Word, provides us believers with strength and joy and peace and hope as we face trials. I don't think that Bernie and Brenda and Rhonda and their family could have endured what they have gone through the last, I don't know, six months or so or a year with their mother and grandmother without the strength and the hope that God gives us. In this passage, Paul gives us eight descriptions of looking into the face of Jesus Christ. And before we continue with our text this morning, which we have titled as Looking at the Face of Jesus Christ. Looking at the Face of Jesus Christ. Before we do so, we would like to read from our passage of Scripture, which is in 2 Corinthians. For you, those of you who have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we'll begin reading, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would command ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now before we continue on, we want to go to God in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, today that we can come humbly and look into your word and have all assurance, Father, that your Holy Spirit will be with us will guide us, will give us clarity, will give us passion as we look into your word. Oh Lord, I pray that you will touch each heart who listens this morning by your word. Because Father, it is the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, as we look into the face of Jesus Christ, that we truly 
will see the glory of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As Pastor Phil always says, it's time to get to work. We'll look, first of all, at verse 18a. And we see a clarifying look. A clarifying look. He says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. While the creation shows certain truths about God, as we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, those truths are unable to save you and I. A saving knowledge of God comes only through the knowledge of Jesus Christ Himself. What does John 14, 6 tell us? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Only through Jesus Christ. We as believers can gaze into the very face of Christ with an unveiled face. Paul says, we all have the privilege of beholding in His face as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We see, as it were, in a mirror, we see Jesus Christ and the glory of the Lord shining through. He manifested there His mercy in Matthew 9, verse 36. He shows us His wisdom in John 7, 46. He gives us His sovereign authority of God in John 17, verse 2. Our God has never been more clearly shown than in the face of Jesus Christ. All three aspects of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification involve looking into the face of Jesus Christ. Our new life in Christ begins when we look into Christ's face and we see ourselves as Christ sees us as sinners lost and undone without Him. And we accept Him and believe on His name as Lord and Savior of our lives. As we look to Him for our justification, we must also look to Him for our sanctification as we fix our eyes on Jesus. And discerning the mind of Christ from Scripture, as we see in 1 Corinthians 2.16. But you have the mind of Christ, because the one who says that he abides in him ought himself also to walk in the same manner as he walked. John 2, verse 6. Finally, at the glorification, Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Finally, at glorification, we will receive glorified bodies. We will be in the very presence of God. Why, then, would you and I, as believers, be defeated by the difficulties and the struggles of life? If we have a right understanding of God, if we fail to have a right understanding of God, we are not looking into the face of Jesus Christ. The better that we know Christ, the better we will know God. Since knowing Him is seeing the Father. Jesus said in John 14, verse 9, the better we know God and Christ, the better equipped that you and I are to handle life's trials and life's struggle, troubles. What does suffering do to us? Suffering weakens our dependence on self, on me, so that the power of God can show itself in us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, My grace is made sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here we see a clarifying look. Now in verse 18b, we see a transforming look. He says, We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. As we look at the glory of God in the face of Christ, we are continually being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We continue to progress higher to higher levels of glory. In other words, we move closer to the image of Jesus Christ. I trust that I, my life is much closer to the image of Christ than it was 20 years ago. I trust that it is closer to God than it was 10 years ago or 5 or even a year or six months ago. As we go through struggles, we become more and more like Christ if we submit our wills to Him. Paul wrote to the Galatians. He says, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 4.19 what, a, what a, a joy that Paul had when he seen that the believers in Christ, there at Galatia, that Christ was being formed in their life and in their lifestyles. And it's our desire this morning to see that in each one of us. It brings us great joy. The early believers were called Christians at Antioch because of the what? Their Christ-likeness. We see in Acts 11:26. Spiritual maturity is the measure of the stature 
which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We see in Ephesians 4.13. What is God's ultimate goal? It is that we become conformed into the image of God's dear Son in Romans 8, verse 29. That goal is accomplished in you and my life when we gaze into the face of Jesus Christ. When we do that, it says that the Lord, the Spirit, changes us into His very image. The Holy Spirit does that work. We don't do it ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We can't make ourselves right before God, but He can. The Holy Spirit, the Lord, changes us into His very image. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, we move on and we see a strengthening look. A strengthening look. Here Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercies of God, we do not lose heart. Therefore, points us back to Paul's discussion of the new covenant, doesn't it? We see it in, if we read in chapter 3, verses, I believe, about 6 through 18 there. Strength to endure trials comes from a look into the face of Christ that was made possible under the new covenant. That look was also the, the source of strength for Paul's New Testament ministry or his preaching. The phrase, we have this ministry, emphasizes Paul's humility that God graciously granted him the privilege of being a new covenant minister in Acts 20, 24. Paul's call to the ministry was completely of God's mercy. John MacArthur says this, God's mercy is His withholding judgment that sinners deserve temporarily in the case of the unsaved to give opportunity for repentance and faith and permanently for we who are redeemed. That is God's mercy and His grace. God showed Paul mercy by putting him into service or into the ministry. We see again in 1 Timothy 1.12. As Paul kept his eyes focused on Jesus Christ, he was strengthened, and here it says, and did not lose heart. The Greek word here for lose heart is enkakeo, which means to uh, give in to fear or to lose courage, or to behave like a coward. So Paul may have said here, um, he may have said, therefore having this ministry by the mercies of God, that we do not give in to fear. We don't act like a coward. We do not lose courage. 
His courage came from knowing God of glory, whom he perceived or saw in the face of Jesus Christ. God in his sovereign mercy saved him, and he chose him to be a minister and to give him the strength to do the work of the ministry. He was strengthened. And now in verse 2a, we see a purifying heart or a purifying look. But we have renounced the hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness. From the moment that he first saw the glory of Christ at his dramatic conversion, Paul renounced his disgraceful, underhanded ways. He despised his sin and he cried out for deliverance. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of the sin and death? Chapter 7, verse 24. I've cried that same prayer myself. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the sin, the body of this death? And he says, thanks be to God that gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I see the glory of God shown in the face of Christ and are redeemed, we understand who God is and what His holy law demands of us and we turn from our sin in repentance and we devote ourselves to godliness and to holiness. Here, we see that little conjunction, but. In the Greek, it's pronounced Allah. And it could be translated on the contrary, or on the other hand. So we might read, on the other hand, we have renounced the things hidden. It shows the contrast here between the Apostle Paul and the false apostles at Corinth. The disgraceful and underhanded ways could be the very ways that they were accusing him of. But in reality, it was the false apostles, not Paul, who were guilty of them. He once lived a disgraceful, underhanded life before he was saved. And that's why he cried, O wretched man that I am, because he at one time persecuted the very church of God. And Paul was sorry, so sorry for that after he was converted. He was like the fellow Pharisees whom Jesus accusingly announced in Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes! Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs on the outside and appear, that appear beautiful. But on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. He says on the outside, you look great, you look pretty, you look beautiful, but on the inside, you stink. You're like dead men's bones. Paul's secret life of sin 
when he met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, he became a new creature in Christ. He said, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This doesn't mean that the Apostle Paul sinned again, that he never sinned again. But when he did sin, he confessed his sin, he repented of his sin, and he turned away from his sin. When sin attempts to creep back into our lives, what do we do to defeat it? We defeat it through prayer and through the reading and the studying and the meditating and the memorizing of God's holy word. It is only the word of God that will help us get rid of sin in our lives. Paul declared that he refused to practice cunning or walking in craftiness, which refers to trickery. Paul's approach was very plain. It is with simple speech. He stated in 1 Corinthians 2.12, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul's pure and powerful preaching of the gospel frustrated and threatened them. What did he say in Romans 1.16? He says, I am crucified with... I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation unto all who believed. To the Jews and also to the Gentile. The very gospel threatened them. It exposed their disgraceful lives, so it is no wonder that they were so bitterly opposed to the Apostle Paul. The difference between Paul and the false apostles was that he had looked to Christ Jesus for salvation. They did not. They had nothing to do with Christ. They didn't want to hear the gospel. No one can look into the very face of Jesus and continue to live in a disgraceful life of sin. Why? John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on himself, purifies himself. I'm sorry here. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Christ purifies us through Jesus Christ. That's how we're purified, through him. And now we're going to look at a truth-loving work. Look, a truth-loving look. 
or to tamper with God's word, he says, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, here in verse 2b. From the time of his conversion, along with his disgraceful life of sin, Paul also renounced any feeling of shame because of the offense of the gospel that could make him guilty of tampering or adulterating God's word. Paul's message was the simple, pure, powerful, unmixed truth of the gospel. Only the gospel. That's why he looked at the cross. I'm determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The same could not be said of the false apostles. They were so busy tampering with the Word of God for their own purposes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 17, Paul denounced them of peddling the Word of God. They were no more than peddlers. They were cheats. They were frauds. They were guilty of the same deception that they falsely accused Paul of. They may have insisted that Paul's simplistic message denied the secret things of God, that therefore he was guilty of failing to preach the whole counsel of God. What they didn't realize, sadly, many today, those who preach the sufficiency and the accuracy and the inerrancy of the Bible, of the Word of God. Oh, there's so many today that do not even believe the inerrancy of Scripture. To me, that is so, so sad. John MacArthur again says, the idea that the Bible alone, apart from psychology, mysticism, or supposed supernatural experiences, contains everything to live a joyous, fulfilled, God-honoring life is derided as quaintly naive and overly simplistic, end quote. How true. It is only God's word alone. Even sadder today, and it was then, that many Christians will not endure sound doctrine, but they're wanting to have their ears tickled. They accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths or to fables. 2 Timothy 4, chapter 3 and 4. What is a sure mark of a growing Christian? It is the love for biblical truth. Biblical truth.
Scripture. <clears throat> when there is an open statement or manifestation of the truth in Scripture, no matter what scorn it may bring, there is a source of spiritual power. The faithful preacher's world is what? Bible truth. Bible truth. His task is to proclaim the pure doctrine that is the foundation of the faith. All believers should also love the truth. Like newborn babies, we long for the pure milk of the word so that by it they may grow in respect to salvation. 1 Peter 2, 2 tells us. Just as that newborn baby longs for the milk of its mother, so do we hunger and long for the word of God. Paul's plain preaching of the gospel had the effect of what? He says, of commending him to every man's conscience. All people, even those who have not heard the gospel, have an inborn limited knowledge of God. The preaching of the gospel spurs into action our conscience, which bears witness to the truth of the message, even in those who reject it. We know that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 This Word of God is like a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It gets right down into the thoughts and the intents of our very hearts. As with all things in Paul's life, he preached the truth in the sight of God, he says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 and 4, he makes a a wonderful statement here. He says, but with all things, but, but with me, I'm sorry, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul sought God's approval, not man. And he realized that God is the one to whom every preacher and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is accountable. He made one acknowledgement I don't suppose any of us can ever make. He says, for I am not aware of anything against myself. That's an amazing statement. I think there's one place, I'm not sure exactly where in Scripture, where he says, I am not guilty of the blood of any man. 
In other words, anyone who he had contact with, he was willing and able to share the gospel. He was innocent of the blood of all men. Amazing. What a heart he had for people. He definitely had a truth, loving look at the face of Christ. Now, verses 3 and 4, we see a privileged look. And even if our gospel is veiled, he says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you know that not everyone has the privilege of looking in the face of Jesus? For Jesus says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few that find it. We see in Matthew 7, verse 14. Only those of us who have had that veil of spiritual blindness removed in Christ can look into His face. 2 Corinthians 3, 14. And that brings up a very, very interesting question. Why? Oh, why did He... Christ. Why did he remove that veil for me? I don't know. The only answer that I can find is because of his mercy and his grace and his love that he chose me before the foundations of the world, he says. Praise his name. Paul's approach was very simple, and it was very pointed. Again, he says, For I am determined to know anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He always went back to the cross, didn't he? Always to the cross. He admitted. He said, My message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom. But they were in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power in 1 Corinthians 2.4. Paul's message was plain and it was bold. He preached of sin, of repentance and faith. His preaching was upsetting people around him. They were getting agitated with Paul. Why? Because it was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He certainly needed a new marketing plan, didn't he? To overcome all this resistance. That kind of thinking is so prevalent in today's church. Contemporary critics argue for a message that's more subtle and less offensive than preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching about sin, about repentance, about judgment, 
about eternal hell is out. And user-friendly churches and seeker-friendly churches are in. Many worship services today become places of entertainment where everyone feels comfortable and not threatened. Heaven forbid that someone would feel threatened by their sin. They feel they have to do this so all people will be open to consider Christ, but they forget one thing. They forget that their salvation is a work of God alone. Salvation is never the result of human persuasion. It is a sovereign act of God. In John 6, 44, John sa- Jesus declared, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Also in Acts eleven eighteen affirms that God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Paul reminded Timothy, or Titus, that God saved us, not on the basis of the deeds or our works which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, we see in Titus 3.5. What we need from preachers of the gospel today is not cleverness, but clarity. Only God Himself can open the blinded eyes of sin of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul taught in Ephesians 2.1. To those who criticized his preaching as offensive, what did Paul say? He said, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Those who are fallen, dead in their sins, spiritually blind, those who reject the gospel are headed for eternal doom. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The issue is that those who reject the gospel do so because they love the darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil in John 3.19. Also, because of their own love of sin, unbelievers reject the gospel because what? He says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The unbelievers are the same ones described in verse 3 as those who are perishing. They're lost. Speaking of the God of this world, meaning the age of Satan, is the one who controls the aims, the hopes, the viewpoints of our current world system. That's why John, in 1 John I believe, chapter 2, 14, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. 
They're not of the Father, but they're of the world. Satan deludes the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the glorious gospel. Satan has created a system that caters to those who are depraved and drives them deeper, deeper into the darkness of their sin. Here's what the Bible says. It says, they are veiled from the truth. 2 Corinthians 3.15. They are haters of the light and lovers of the darkness in John 3.19. They walk according to the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the souls of disobedience, living after the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2.2 2 and 3. This world system Satan has created today inflames the evil desires of the sinner, causing them to be willfully blind and to love their sin and their darkness. Minds, minds, here refers to the ability to reason or to think. Those who are unsaved and are unredeemed cannot understand spiritual truth because they have been given over to a depraved mind, Romans 1.28 says. And they cannot reason. They cannot even think right. Only God can turn on the light in the human heart so that it can respond in saving faith to the gospel of the, the glory of Christ. Second Corinthians 4, God's glory is revealed in Jesus Christ. Why? It says, because who is in the image of God. In the very image of God. Who is God? In John 1.14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, the Son, God in the flesh. A privileged look. What a blessing that we have to have that unveiled look into the very face of Christ. In verse 5, we see a humbling look. Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. Some of the false apostles, as we've seen, made some very slanderous accusations against Paul, saying that some of his preaching 
was with selfish motives for his own self-promotion. Nothing could have been farther and further from the truth. What did Paul just declare here? He says, we do not proclaim ourselves. Later in the epistle, Paul writes, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another, they are without understanding in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He doesn't compare himself with others. Far from being arrogant, proud, and self-assured, Paul ministered in Corinth. He says, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling in 1 Corinthians 2, 3. Again, he said, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me in 2 Corinthians 12, 5. That doesn't sound to me like self-promotion or arrogance or pride. That sounds like humility. Paul's vision for the glory of Christ dominated his life and his love for God and the church. We find places, I believe in Acts, where he says he prayed, he prayed night and day in tears. How many of us go to God and pray all night in tears for our church? Instead of promoting self, Paul proclaimed Christ Jesus as Lord, he says. He preached Christ as the humble in Philippians 2.8 crucified and risen Savior who died to save His people from their sins in John 1.29. He also preached Him as the Sovereign Lord who demands what? Submission and obedience to Himself, Romans 10.9. We see here that Jesus was both Savior and Lord of our lives God, in His sovereign grace, uses that truth to bring salvation to our human heart. Paul often declared himself to be a servant of Jesus Christ. We see in Galatians 1.10. He said, who served the church for Jesus' sake. We who love Christ Jesus and desire to serve Him will be filled with humility not arrogance. We will humbly desire to love and to serve God's people in every way that we can. And finally, we have a sovereign look in verse 6. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Redemption is as much a sovereign work of God as creation. Paul used the analogy of creation to describe salvation when he wrote, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. 
Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He also used the physical world using an analogy for salvation drawn from creation, stating that the same God who said light shall shine out of darkness in Genesis 1-3 is the one who has shown in our hearts. The same God who turned on the lights physically turns on the lights spiritually. Spiritual darkness covers the unredeemed until God shines the light of the gospel in our hearts. God alone can erase the darkness of sin and ignorance in our lives. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Colossians 1, 12 and 13. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. At the time of salvation, sinners receive the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When our God sovereignly shines that light into our sin-darkened hearts through the preaching of the gospel, gospel, it brings true knowledge of who Christ is. He is the incarnate God, and that glory of God shines perfectly in the face of Jesus Christ. In this rich text of Scripture, Paul has revealed what the Christian life involves. As we look into the face of Jesus Christ, during this troubling time, during struggles and trials, my desire is that we all will grow closer and closer to the image of Jesus Christ. And God will receive all glory. And I'll close. As I look into my Savior's face, I know that for me He died. He died that all my sins erase, that my God would be glorified.